Thank you, Mike. Mike is faithful, and I appreciate his faithfulness. He teaches our keiki catechism and choir. He does an excellent job on Sunday mornings, and uh, thank you. Thank you for investing in our children. My children are greatly blessed by it, and I encourage you, church, if you have young children, to consider uh, their class because those kids will come, they'll practice songs, and then they come in here and they, they sing, they lead us. Our, our smallest ones in congregational worship. And so it is a beautiful and sweet time. So thank you, Mike, for your role in that. Good morning. And today, today is the Lord's Day. And thank you for joining us on the Lord's Day this holiday weekend, as we have some who are traveling as a result of the holiday. Uh, and others, perhaps you traveled here and you're joining us. So today's sermon is on grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Uh, the title of the sermon is Effectual Grace. Effectual Grace. Helmets are important. Does anybody work in a job in which you need to wear a helmet all the time? Anybody? No, nobody. Nobody works in a job. No heavy construction workers or anything of that nature. Uh, how about bicycle, cyclists, any, any cyclists in here, all right? And you wear a helmet, Noah, right, when you ride? Yes, yes. Um, motorcycles, horsepower, perhaps. Motorcycle, anybody ride motorcycles? You ride motorcycle. You do. Fascinating. I've never seen you. That's cool. Anybody else? Motorcycle? A few motorcycles, uh, people who ride those. You need to wear in all of these things, whether you're a construction worker Maybe you're in the military, you have to have a helmet when you're in a battlefield combat zone. Uh, maybe when you're riding a bicycle, you have a helmet in other professions, other things. Skateboarding, BMX riding, mountain biking, all of these things, you wear a helmet. There are all kinds of different helmets, and they have all kinds of varying degrees of protection, but the design is the same across all of them protect this thing inside your brain, inside your head known as your brain, that vital organ. Well, today our sermon series continues on the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. The fancy word for that is soteriology, soteriology. That's the theological term. Uh, all it means is the doctrine or the study of salvation, Paul refers to our salvation in Ephesians, or actually, I mean, you could say the whole Bible, but Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, this famous passage on the armor of God. He says this, Take the helmet of our salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So he calls salvation like a helmet that protects your vital organ. And he commands us to take the helmet of our salvation and the sword of the Spirit and do spiritual battle. Now, this doctrine of salvation, it's not something, and I heard this after the very first sermon, and I'm sure I'll continue to hear it, it's not something you hear taught from a lot of pulpits on a Sunday morning in churches across our nation. You don't hear it taught very often. I find that kind of strange, considering how much we talk about salvation, right? We talk about salvation every Sunday in pulpits across America, but how often do we slow down, dissect, examine, observe the component parts of our salvation? This thing that, that can take somebody who's on one path and headed for destruction and totally 180 degrees turn them to Christ incredible. But yet, it's not something that's taught often. We said last week the result of neglecting to teach on salvation is that you and other believers kind of, we kind of, when we don't teach on something, that means you kind of have to be left to figure it out, right? And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But what can happen is we can cobble together teaching a little bit from here, and that sounds good, and I, I heard this in this book, and I heard this pastor say this, and then this Sunday school said this. And, and so we kind of cobble together our doctrine of salvation and often these cobbled together beliefs can be full of inconsistencies, sometimes errors. 
that simultaneously stifle joy on one hand and then are unable to withstand attacks from false teachers on the other. At camp, I got to go to the children's camp this year. It was a a really big blessing to be able to go. And one of the days, the children, with their main, with a counselor that they select, I don't know how they selected the the counselor, but but one of the days at the end, the children take a counselor and they're given a bunch of cardboard and duct tape. And they're tasked with making armor for their champion, their, their hero, counselor. And so they, they kind of duct tape, and some of the designs are more intricate than others, and they have to make a little sword. And, but, but they all had a helmet of some kind or fashion, an armor, and it was just kind of duct taped together. You know, it's not the Iron Man, Marvel-type stuff, but some of them are pretty good. That's kind of the state of many people's doctrine of salvation. Your helmet is kind of makeshift. And what I want to do through this is make it tight. Fill in the gaps. Make it solid. Make it sound. Build it up so that you're ready for not only any attack that may come, but so that your joy, your confidence, an overflow of satisfaction comes from your soul as you see how great is this salvation God has granted to us. So my aim has been to give you an overview and an introduction. That's it. It's an overview and an introduction. You should think of it at that level. I'm not going into all the nuanced arguments or all the nitty-gritty types of details, but it's an overview since this is one of our first times walking through this. We are using the acronym TULIP from the, as many know, from the five points of Calvinism. We changed it a little bit to TIULP. We, we broke that flower, that tulip flower, to teolp, uh, total depravity, irresistible grace, unconditional election, limited atonement, and perseverance of the saints. That's the order we will take them in from the tulip. Now, some refer to this as the five points of Calvinism, Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace, or just biblical teaching. Like I said last week, I'm not... Uh, given to the label. I'm not opposed to it, but nor do I champion it. It's simply a shorthand way to refer to a system of belief. That's all it is. To the degree that it's helpful, good. To the degree that it's unhelpful, discard it. That's fine. But in a day and age where everybody from false teachers to super godly faithful men all say they believe the Bible, we have to have some sort of shorthand way to find distinguishing marks. And so, Use the label. If you don't like it, don't, don't take it, but that's just, I'm, I'm telling you where we are going and what we are using so that you may know what we're doing. I also need to point out that your conversations over these things need to be done in love and patience. I'm just going to say that again. Your conversations over lunch or in small groups or at home or however that looks like need to be done in love and patience. These doctrines should not, and I have this in all caps, right, not be weaponized or used against each other or those with whom you disagree. They should not be weaponized or used to steamroll people who do not agree with you. You should be very patient, very loving with those who disagree with you, and you should love them in Christ. Far too often when people uh, discuss these doctrines, or really any doctrine, we find that the anger of man too often accompanies and shades the doctrines of God, doesn't it? Rarely is it profitable. I personally have had some very, very discouraging encounters with people who claim to believe all five points just like I do. They're, they're, we're on the same page theologically, but their hyper, hypersensitivity to what they would say is truth, their overly critical spirit, their overly judgmental ideas of sound doctrine and Christendom, they're just sometimes very concerning and very discouraging. As they find joy at finding fault with systems and have little practice or eagerness to find overlap, encouragement, and love. Don't be like that, KPC. Don't don't come out of here being like that. We want to approach all peoples at all times with truth and love. 
together, never separated, never apart. So, if you have people outside the camp who are either Arminians or others, don't look on them with disdain. Love them. Rejoice in the commonality of the gospel of first importance that we share together and encourage them as the Lord leads. I say that to press you, because if your doctrine, no matter what it is, if your doctrine doesn't lead you to love God as seen in a holy life and love people, your neighbor as yourself, if your doctrine doesn't do those two things, your faith is more akin to demons than it is to anything in the Bible. Demons believe the Bible and they tremble. And they tremble. So, this must overflow in a greater love for God, resulting in greater holiness and greater love and compassion for people, for all people, even those with whom you may disagree or who may disagree with me. So, as I progress into this series, we covered total depravity last week. I want to let you know, I let you know on Facebook and newsletter if you get those things. Uh, I am open to questions and answers, Q&A. So uh, the way that's going to go is if I say something and you have a question about it, feel free to email me, write me, otherwise submit that to me, put it in the church office, text it to me. Whatever you do, write it down and send it to me. Make it clear, make it legible, uh, and it will be anonymous, okay? You can put your name on it. I don't care. You don't have to put your name on it. It doesn't matter to me. But if it's anonymous, it has to be nice. It's got to be nice, all right? If it's not nice, not going to answer. <laughs> um, or maybe I will on a sermon about being nice. Ooh, right? So, uh, <laughs> so that's right. right? So, um, but I, they will be anonymous in how I give them out. So I'm not going to be like Uncle Lance asks, right? No. So I'm not going to do that. It's just going to be somebody asks. So feel free to submit those questions. I'll answer them either throughout the sermon series or at the end I'll do a wrap-up and interact with some of those questions. I look forward to giving to interacting with you and seeing what you have. Today, today though, let us be, as Charles Spurgeon said, like true bees, like true bees, like a, like a bzzz bee. Let us be like true bees and see if there be any honey in this flower. Let's pray. Father, you have said in Jeremiah, 29, let him who speaks my word speak faithfully. God, I, I desire from the depths of my being to speak your word faithfully this morning. I desire to give an accurate and true representation of you, your character, and your actions. Father, may this people, may I never be tied to systems of men but only and ever to your life-giving, world-creating word. May we hear that word, and may we do that word. And when we fail to do that word, may we rest in that word, the promise that Christ forgives sinners and changes them if they will repent. And so, God, grant this morning, I pray, clarity of speech. Grant focus for the listener, and would you be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, number two, number one, number one, number two, I'm already ahead of myself. Number one, overwhelming grace. Point number one, overwhelming grace. Your second point will be overwhelming joy. Overwhelming grace and overwhelming joy. Last week, we saw in our total depravity that we are radically depraved. We, our sin has impacted us to the very core of our being. The Bible describes us as incapable or unable to keep God's commands or do that which is pleasing to Him. So in your natural state, apart from God, you are incapable, you are unable to obey God's law, or do that which pleases Him. The Bible uses all sorts of spiritual phrases or metaphors to describe our spiritual state. It says you're dead spiritually. You are spiritually blind. 
You are a slave to sin. You are a lover of darkness. You are hostile to God, and therefore we are all people without exception. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. Even our good deeds, you think of a fallen unbeliever, even their good deeds on their best day are still tainted with sinful motives and not done for the glory of God. In that sense, picture a pepper shaker with mouse poop in it. The whole thing is contaminated, isn't it? The whole thing, you can't see it as clearly, but it's still there and still contaminated. So is all of our righteous deeds. While they might not seem outwardly amongst men sinful and fallen, they are all contaminated by our sin. All of them. So underneath point two right here, underneath I drew a comprehensive chart of everything God owes you. Everything. It's right underneath here. It says everything. Oh, that's even better. Thank you for putting that up there. That's better. So here's your chart because of your sin of everything God owes you. Do you see it? What is it? Nothing. And actually, that's not accurate, is it? That would be a grace, wouldn't it, to get nothing for my sin? That would be a, a kindness. In fact, we deserve much worse, don't we? We deserve the wrath of God poured out for ages upon ages upon ages. That's what we deserve. That's your chart of what God owes you. Before you say, how is that fair on anything I say, remember that. We deserve what? Death. Which means if you get anything other than death, like right now or yesterday or hell, like two weeks ago, that's all. You're standing in grace right now. We deserve death. So we are totally depraved. Believe it or not, Arminians would agree with that statement. So, or, or you could just say, outside of the camp, outside of what I'm teaching, everybody else in Christendom, faithful Christendom, uh, would agree with that. Wesleyans, uh, Nazarenes, many assemblies who tend to be Arminian in practice, and then everything in between. Everybody would agree that man is fallen. That's not controversial. Everybody would, well, that is controversial in other places, but for, in Christendom, that is, that is not very controversial we are dead in our sin. We part ways there. That's about all that is agreed upon. Everything else is where we part ways. While all biblical systems recognize the deadness of men, our incapacity, the Arminian framework, and I'm just going to use that term to say anything contrary to this, and I'll, I'll, you'll, I'll get into it as we get in. So if you're like, I don't know what Arminian is. Is that a country? No, that's Armenia, right? It's Armenian. We'll talk about that. That's the other end of the spectrum. Um, I'm just using that. There are variations of it, but they are, are just that. They're just that. They're variations of it uh, underneath the umbrella still yet. So when I say Armenian, that's what I mean. The Armenian framework or variations of it would affirm... Yes, you are dead in sin. Yes, you are incapable as a natural man to do or respond to God. They would say yes. And then they would espouse what's called prevenient grace. It's called prevenient grace. That means it comes before or precedes. It's prevenient. They would espouse prevenient grace and say that God gives this prevenient grace universally to all people. Now, there's variations of that. Some say all people have it just by, by God's good kindness. Some say they only get it as the gospel is preached, different things like that, but it is prevenient. Now, what this grace, this prevenient grace is or does, is they say it enables a man, fallen man, that it restores a measure, it is a gift of God, it restores a measure of his, you could say, free will. So if my will, they would say, yes, my will is enslaved to sin. I cannot freely do that which pleases God. You see, because my desires are enslaved. I am a lover of darkness. They would say yes and amen. And then they would say, God gives you in his grace, he restores a measure, just enough of your free will 
just enough of life in your spirit for you to be able to respond either positively or negatively to the gospel. If you respond in faith, then you are saved. If you reject it, you are not. In the full Armenian system, this would be your your Wesleyans or, or whatever of that nature, and your full confessional Arminians, your Nazarenes, your Wesleyans, those types of things, they are confessionally in their church beliefs. Arminians, in the full system, you have to continue to respond to the grace that God shows you, not just at salvation, but every day until you see him in glory. If you turn at any portion of that, you can turn away of your own free will and thereby reincur the wrath of God. Thus, you can lose, you, so to speak, your salvation on the full extreme of it. Again, there's variations of it, but that's the idea. The man has to respond and continue to respond to the grace shown to him by faith. So if you were to ask, what is the decisive difference, what, what is the main difference in those two systems? The main difference in those two systems is that the decisive and determining agent of salvation is man or God. That's, that's the main difference. Everything else flows out of that. Who has the decisive vote in your salvation? If you say man, you go down that track. If you say God, you go down that track. That is the main difference in all of them. Now let me say, we could summarize their understanding and say that God's gracious call is universal but not effective. So if I were to summarize that, we would say their system, God's gracious call is universal in that it goes out to all people, but it is not effective. It does not accomplish the call. It needs the man to respond. And I do have to say there are a lot of good things about this understanding. There's much to be commended. They strive to take Scripture as they see it and faithfully apply it. But there's significant problems with it as well. The foremost, foremost problem being that it's just not taught in Scripture. Just fascinating. The prevenient grace is very loosely even pulled out of context verses. They just aren't there. Even if you are not a full-on Calvinist, there are other positions that would see that and say, yeah, that's just not there. Prevenient grace is not taught, at least in the way that they describe it. The picture becomes almost one of uh, CPR. Anybody CPR certified in here? Okay, a few of people. So if, if you drop in the middle of a sermon, you guys already know who's going to be doing, right? The compression. So um, I've given CPR, real life, in person, brought two people back um, with a pulse, but they died. They were brain dead. It didn't happen in time. So, uh, but they did come back through the CPR, no pulse, got a pulse. And, and so the picture for the Arminian perspective, if you have a corpse, a spiritual corpse lying on the, on the ground that God gives them just enough life, and it's like, you want more treatment, they can't respond. But, well, if they respond yes, then you get more treatment. If it's no, you just go die again, and you do this repeatedly until the Lord comes. That is the picture that has to be seen, that God temporarily gives a measure of will. And then if you resist the Holy Spirit, then he takes it away until the next time, and then again, and again, and again, and it's just the type of CPR picture. I'm not sure that's what the scriptures, actually I am strongly convinced that is not what the scriptures portray. The reform side, which is the side I'll be presenting this morning, says the opposite. Says that God's gracious call in salvation is effective, but not universal. So you see the Armenian side says universal, but not effective. The Reformed side says it's effective, it just isn't universal. He doesn't give that same work of the Spirit to all peoples, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. Some call this doctrine, the I and tulip, the flower, I, T-U-L-I-P, irresistible grace. Some call that irresistible 
grace. It's a good pickup line if you're single. You say, how? You say, your name must be grace because you're irresistible. All right? That's how it goes. So uh, you can use it. You're welcome. If you're my daughter, Scarlet Grace, and I guess that would be a true statement. So uh, you are irresistibly cute, Scar. It's probably a better pickup line than a description of the doctrine. The term was not coined by Calvinists. It was coined by, actually, Arminians. Many misunderstand what it teaches, in fact, due to the name, irresistible. It does not mean that grace is irresistible, which is why it's not a super good name. Clearly, people resist grace. They do it all the time. The scriptures speak often and wholly about how men resist the Holy Spirit. That much is clear. In fact, we would say that is all that men do by default is resist what God wants for them to do. We reject God. That's total depravity. We do what we do because we love darkness. That's the natural man. So it doesn't mean people don't resist God. Yes, of course they resist God. It also doesn't mean that God drags people against their will to himself. That's not what it means either. I'm going to save you in the worst descriptions or caricatures of this. Some would say it's like a divine rape. I will have you no matter what, even against your will. No, 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 no. That's just blasphemous. It doesn't mean that either. So what does this doctrine mean then? Here's what it means. Irresistible grace, or we could call it overcoming grace, conquering grace, radical grace, effectual grace. The title of the sermon is the other popular name. Irresistible grace says that in recognition of our depravity, when God wills to, when he decides to, he bestows radical or effectual grace to some, and that this grace is not merely offered, it actually overcomes the rebellion of sinners by the miracle of regeneration. That's the new birth. You hear that term, born again, John chapter 3. It actually overcomes the rebellion of sinners by the miracle of regeneration, giving them a new heart with new desires and effectually results in their salvation. That's what irresistible or effectual grace means. Like a magnet will inevitably pull certain metals, so the Spirit, when He wills to move, that's a big point, when He so wills it, will draw the sinner to salvation. God gives a sinner a new heart such that he sees and believes in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Men can resist a lot of things, and often and long, but when the king of the universe, when God sets to accomplish something, the scriptures are clear, he will not fail. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And I, I, I quote that, and I could quote myriads of passages that just say, when God wills to do something, it's done. It's done. Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way. Abimelech, Learn that the hard way when God says, I kept you from sinning. What do we mean when we quote the Proverbs and it says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. We gladly affirm that when we're talking politics. God's in control of politics. But what do we really mean? Can God override sovereignly their will to do exactly what he intends? That's what the Bible says. And if it means that in politics and kingdoms, does it not mean that in salvation as well? It's not enough for me to say it or reason it from one passage, is it? Let me demonstrate it from two more passages, one at length. The first would be John chapter 6, which Mike read, John 6, 35 to 51. Starting in verse 35, 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Now here's, here's what we're talking about, right? Jesus, he's just fed 5,000. There's people he's now teaching, and, and he's saying, you don't believe. So you've seen a sign, you've heard me teach, but you don't believe. Why don't you, don't, why don't you believe? That's what he's, he's about to address. Why don't you believe? You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37. All, get that, all that the Father gives me, what's the next word say? Will come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I want you to just hone in what he says. All that the Father gives me might come to me. Is that what it says? All who the Father gives me may come to me if they exercise their will and come. All whom the Father gives me, what's it say? Will come to me. How can Jesus speak with such certainty? See, these Jews are engaging with Jesus. He's shown them signs. He's told them who he is. They've seen it with their eyes. They've heard it with their ears and yet don't believe. And then Jesus says, verse 37, what does it all mean? Well, he doesn't just leave us one verse. He gives us a whole discourse. John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Sorry, in the New Testament, not the Bible. You're like, wait, what? No. In the New Testament, it is the longest chapter in the New Testament. Look at verse 44. Jump down. John chapter 6, verse 44, says the same thing, but in a negative sense. So all that the Father will gives me, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the positive. Now he's going to say it in the negative. And remember, he's addressing why they don't believe. Verse 44, what's he say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says, nobody can come. How come they can't come? Is it because they're not invited? No, they're invited. It's because they are unable. They lack the ability to break the chains of darkness on their own. Look at verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe, Jesus says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, this would be a great opportunity, wouldn't it? This would be a great opportunity for Jesus to say what we would hear in many Christian circles when somebody asks, Why does, why does one person believe in the gospel and not another? You ever asked that or wondered that? Why, do, why does one person accept and believe the gospel and, and another doesn't? This would be a great time for Jesus to say, you know, why don't you believe? You've heard, you've seen. Why don't you believe? Well, God gave everybody a free will. It's up to them. This would be a great time to put that in there. You don't believe because you have free will. You're exercising your will to resist. I hope you'll change your mind. Is that what he says? That's not what he says. What does he say? What does Jesus say? You cannot come, you cannot come unless it is granted to you by my Father. In other words, you need grace, grace that is enabling and effectual and that is able to overcome your hardened heart, to grant you a new will, a new heart, as Ezekiel 36 says, and new eyes to see. Now, you may say, well, God gives that grace to everybody. And then they choose by their own free will to accept or reject him, like the Armenian position. That's not what it says. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. God doesn't grant this effectual grace for all people without exception. 
only for those whom the Father has given to the Son. We'll cover that next week. Who are those that the Father has given to the Son? We'll cover that next week. But God doesn't grant this effectual grace to all people without exception. How do we know that? How do we know that? Am I just inferring that? No, that comes right from the text. Jesus says, check this out, verse 44, that all who are drawn are raised up at the last day. So I want you to see the connection. If I interpret one all statement in a universal sense, I have to interpret the second part of that statement as well in the same way to be consistent. Check out verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what's it say? And I will raise him up, not or, and I will raise him up on the last day. So all who are drawn by the Father are also what? Raised up. They're saved on the last day. If we say that God draws everybody in this way, then we would have to be a universalist. You would be forced to be consistent with your interpretation. You would be forced to say that just as God draws all those people, he will raise them up on the last day. And there are people who believe that. But that's not what it says. All who are drawn to the Father will be raised up at the last day. Salvation will be complete from start to finish. So what is true here then? What's true is that God is a mighty God who loves his son Jesus and has granted Jesus a people who by grace will be saved with absolute certainty. We could trace this thread through John, John 10. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Them I must bring also. I must. Not I'll try to bring. I must bring them. They will come. Jesus will complete the work for which he set out to do. Let's look at one more passage. We could do more. We'll look at one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6 is a fascinating passage. I love this passage. We have Paul, and he's using, he, he makes a comparison that's just very interesting. Check it out, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see? So the, the God of this world has blinded unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. Verse 6. For God, sorry, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did God say that? Anybody know? Let there be light. When did he say that? What book? Genesis, right? The book of Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He's using that comparison. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Paul is using creation imagery and applying it to redemption and saying, this is what's happened. The same God who said, let there be light, and there was light, said, let there be light. Let them see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And what do we see? Lights. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. See, the God who creates is the same God who redeems. The God whose word creates molecules from nothing gives spiritual life to dead people. Which is to say, the word of God will accomplish that for which it is sent. It will never return to him empty or void. And this is incredibly good news. This is grace that is greater than all our sin. Because if you leave me to my own will, even if you help me in a little bit of grace, I will choose darkness. In my natural state, 
Time doesn't permit us, but here's your homework passages. You can go and look at for more. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, another famous passage. Ask, what is the gift of God? That would be the question you should ask. It says, it is the gift of God. What is it talking about? Is it grace? Is it faith? Is it both, either, and, all of the above? What, what is it? That's your homework. What is the gift of God? We could look at Romans 8, 28 through 30, the greatest passage in the Bible. Some refer to it as, yes, it's a beautiful promise. All things work together for good, but it's also a beautiful beautiful description of salvation from start to finish. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he sanctified, and he glorified, not one is lost. We could look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. There's a gift there that God gives. What is that gift? You could look it up. It's repentance. It's repentance. It does not originate from natural man. It never does. It never will. It never has. We could look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The new birth results in belief in Christ. The new birth results in faith in Christ, in belief in Christ. And then I would challenge you from that passage, 1 John chapter 5, if you were so inclined, to look up that phrase, has been born of God, in John's letter. Run it through John. Run a search engine. Search, has been born of God. How many times does 1 John in his letter say that? And you'll find that that is actually substantiated and verified. New life is a result of new birth. Faith in God is a result of the new birth. We could look at many, many more. Time's not going to permit that this morning. What I want to close with this morning is some practical applications. Number two, overwhelming joy. So God in his effectual grace works to sinners and by his Holy Spirit, overcoming their rebellion, giving sight to the blind, giving life to the dead, causing the lame to walk spiritually, breaking spiritual bondage, setting the captive free, and they actually come. What then, what then shall we say to these things? It should give us overwhelming joy. Why? Because God in his mercy didn't leave you to your own devices, beloved. That's the best news in the world. God did not leave you to yourself. Instead, his grace overcame your resistance. You were walking one way, not caring about God, not worrying about whatever, doing whatever brought you pleasure, even in a Christian context perhaps, but you were doing life your way and God entered in and overcame your rebellion. He drew you to himself. There was that day, I think, hopefully all of us, if you haven't, hopefully that day is today, that you felt this overwhelming, pressing, pricking burden of your soul that said, my life is not right with God. I need Jesus. I want Jesus. Nothing's going to stop me. I must have Jesus. And maybe you came with tears, or maybe it was a bedside with your mom or your dad or whoever it was, and you gave your life to Christ. God overcame your rebellion. Praise God forevermore. It should fill you with hope. Not only did God overcome your sin in the past, not only did he forgive you, it should fill you with hope for your family member, for your coworker who just seems so far from God. They just seem like, man, that person is never going to get saved. This doctrine should fill you with hope that God works by His Spirit through His Word and can overcome even the most adamant opponent to Christ. I love the book of Acts. You just see this in action everywhere. 
We just read the, the account of Saul on the road to Damascus with my children, and they read about how Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen, how he hated the church. He was breathing out murderous rage against Christians. And I said, guys, what do you think is going to happen? And they, think, uh, they said, I think Saul's bad. I don't like Saul. He should die. And I said, that's exactly what should happen to Saul. And they were stunned as they saw the power and grace of God overcome Saul's rebellion and change him radically, not in as a opponent, but now a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could talk about Lydia in Acts chapter 13, who's, it says, whose heart the Lord opens to believe. This doctrine should fill you with hope that God can overcome even the most adamant opponent to Christ by his grace through his word. Not only does it give you hope for what he'll do in your life or what he's done in your life or in the life of your friend, this doctrine should bring us to praise God and rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God and rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, if the Holy Spirit of God gave life to your dead spirit, think about this. I was dead before I came to know Christ. And if he made me a new creation, if he overcame my greatest rebellion, let me ask you, what do you struggle with this morning to obey him in? What is your, you could call your besetting sin? That sin that you just feel like, I try to stop, I try to get victory, I try to get help, I try to get accountability, I try to repent, and I just keep falling back into it. That sin, what is it for you? This should give you hope that if Christ or if the Holy Spirit brought dead, the, the dead back to life, he can also overcome and will be victorious in your current sin struggle, whatever it may be. Or maybe you say, I don't have this massive sin that's burdening me this morning. I just need wisdom. Surely this spirit, this God who is all wise, can help you with whatever difficult situation you're in if you'll ask him. We should worship and look upon the Holy Spirit as fondly as you would a doctor who performed life-saving surgery to preserve your life. You should look on him as fondly as you would that doctor who saved your life on the delivery table because that's what the Holy Spirit did in your life. You should recognize this doctrine. This helps us recognize that salvation occurs as a supernatural work of the Spirit of God, and it guards us against man-made devices that try to make a work where there isn't one. It helps guard us against man-made devices in our ministries. See, we're not salesmen. You think I'm a salesperson? Here to give you a good pitch. If I can, if I can just talk you in and, and show you the benefits and, and get you to just make a profession of faith, you'll be saved. There are many churches that would say yes. And that if I can use whatever clever means or emotional experiences to seal the deal, then praise God. That's what they would say. I think that's sad. Salvation is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. I am not a salesman. I am a messenger. You are a messenger. You are a herald. We are proclaimers of the gospel. We proclaim the message of reconciliation, life in Christ, to all who will repent and believe. Yes, is there a place for pressing and urging? And I'll urge you today, if you hear this voice, the gospel call, come today. Don't wait. All I'm doing is telling you what he said. We leave the results to God. We aim to be faithful and leave the results to God. So you have to ask, I have to ask as a pastor, am I preaching the whole counsel of God? Or am I only giving part of the message, you see? 
You, church, have to ask yourself, am I preaching the whole counsel of God to my family, to my friends, or only part of it? See, we are messengers, and we must be faithful to give the fullness of God's truth. And when we do, God works in incredible ways. Lastly, this doctrine of God's effectual grace is good news for sinners. Good news for sinners, people who don't know you. Why is that? Because if you're here, you hear this message, you might think, my sin is too great for God. I am beyond the saving reaches. If you knew what I knew, if you did what I did, you would know I am, I am beyond salvation. And I could just lump up personally. We already said Saul. We already said uh, Lydia. We could talk about Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, this wicked man. We could talk about Zacchaeus, another tax collector, immoral thief. We could talk about all these things. And all of them were saved and impacted by the radical grace of God that is offered to you freely this morning. For the wages of sin is death. Will you choose death? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you will repent of your sins this morning, you will have life. Forgiveness of sins. So we need to hear this often, that God's grace is greater than our sin. And I beg you, I beckon you, don't resist him any longer. Come today. Come and find that our God is able to redeem and save to the uttermost all who call on him. Next week, we will look at those whom have been given to the Father by the Son in election. But today, let us worship in response to the things we have heard and celebrate with our deacons after service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that this word is life. God, you tell us to pray without ceasing, to knock on your door without stopping and ask for help. And so, God, I pray for help right now. For those who are struggling in sin, God, overcome their sin and grant them freedom from that besetting sin today. For those who are living in rebellion, who maybe have never profess to follow Jesus, God, this morning, would you draw them to yourself? Forgive their sins and give them life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now is a time of invitation, and I would like to invite you to respond in one of two ways. Come forward and pray. If you have anything you'd like prayer for or about, if I, something I spoke about, you want to give your life to Jesus or something else, I invite you to come pray. I'll be to this room in my right and your left. Otherwise, let your response be our corporate praise to God. God bless.